Chapter 3 of The Psychology of Alcoholism by George Barton Keaton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memory. The discussion of the memory of the alcoholic is the first psychological subject taken up. The reason for this order being that memory is fundamental. This can be recognized from three different standpoints. Our whole subject leads us to discuss the relation of the psychological to the physical, which is difficult to discover and quite impossible to explain. The memory gives us the best clue to this relationship, as it is without doubt the physiological factor whose dependence we can most clearly trace to the physical processes, and as such has a claim to the first place in this discussion. It is fundamental as a faculty of mind, because all other faculties are more or less dependent upon it. Our knowledge is based on memory, and without it experience would be useless and reasoning impossible. The self shrinks with the memory, and every thought and action are based on it. We must recognize that the mind is so much a unit that we cannot dispense with any portion as useless and go on in life without feeling the need of it. That the mind as a whole is dependent upon every part is true, and yet there is a special sense in which it is dependent upon the memory. Life without memory would be a blank, not to be compared in richness with that of the idiot or insane, who has lost some other faculty of mind. Not only would other faculties of the mind be impossible without memory, but they fail as the memory fails, so that if the decline of memory goes beyond a certain point, it will prove to be the destruction of other faculties. Memory is not a faculty separate from all the others, but rather the condition of their activity. It furnishes the material for mental life, and without it there is no content. The other reason why memory should be first discussed is because its impairment is one of the first symptoms of decay and decline in the life of the alcoholic, as in almost all cases of mental degeneration. Footnote. H. Maldsley, Physiology of Mind, page 535, W. B. Lewis, Textbook of Mental Diseases, page 348, says, The memory is specially implicated. Cases compromised in this category, amnesia forms, show the earliest evidence of the structural change due to the prolonged use of alcohol. They are of most serious moment, as they indicate that the borderland between disordered function and real structural change has been passed. End footnote. Sometimes it may be the only symptom. Footnote. J. Dreshfield on Alcoholic Paralysis, Brain, Volume 8, page 437 and page 444, gives two classes of which he speaks as follows. The patient complained of loss of memory, but otherwise her mental condition was normal. I found the patient irritable, otherwise but little affected, mentally except that he had lost his memory for recent events. End footnote. The slight early affections may be overlooked at first, because of the constant liability to forgetfulness common to normal persons. The decline of the alcoholic's memory may first manifest itself, not in the conscious inability to remember certain things, but in the unconscious effect which it may have upon the other faculties. As the alcoholic has been stricken with premature old age, this symptom so common to the appearance of senility is the first one manifested. Since the memory is fundamental in respect, first, to the explanation of the relationship of mind and brain, second, to the dependence of the faculties upon it, and third, because it is the first symptom of degeneration through excessive indulgence in alcohol, the discussion is placed first. 
The disturbance of memory due to a single intoxication is not within the range of our subject, save as it may throw light upon the effects of the continued use of alcohol. In single intoxications we find at first an exaltation of memory due to the increased supply of blood to the brain, and later a loss more or less complete until the victim lapses into unconsciousness. The fact that he has had his memory exalted or depressed once or twice or many times is not the reason that the memory may fail in advanced cases of inebriety, but the physical condition which cause these temporary changes in the memory tend to cause also such permanent disorder in the cells of the brain as to interfere with the normal function of the mind as far as the memory is concerned. The disorder of memory most common to the alcoholic is that of progressive amnesia. Footnote. W. B. Lewis' Textbook of Mental Disease, page 348, describes the extent of the disorders when he says, The most notable feature characterizing this class is the peculiar failure of memory, an instantaneous forgetfulness of events which have only just occurred. Every degree is found from slight retentiveness up to a complete and almost immediate abolition of the latest impression. A patient so affected forgets names, dates, and order of sequence to an almost incredible degree. If a name not familiar be repeated over and over again, a moment's conversation will often obliterate its memory, even when told to keep the word as a test word in mind. The recall fails if the attention be momentarily attracted in another direction. End footnote. Sometimes we find also well-defined cases of hyperamnesia and abnormal and excessive paramnesia as solitary symptoms or coupled with amnesia. While forgetfulness is a characteristic symptom of all forms of chronic alcoholism, the loss of memory may be so prominent as to constitute a special form of the disease. Berkeley recognizes this. Footnote. H.J. Berkeley, Mental Diseases, page 274, says of this class, This forgetfulness of names, dates, the order of work, even of mealtimes, renders the patient unfit to follow the daily pursuits of ordinary life. This incapacity may exist for the simplest procedures. I have, for instance, ordered a patient afflicted with alcoholic amnesia to bring me a glass of water from the hydrant. He would start off with perfect willingness, would perhaps reach the door, and then return for further orders, with the acknowledgement that he had forgotten for what purpose he had been sent. The scene had been repeated eight or nine times in succession, the patient sometimes very nearly succeeding, at other times hardly reaching the doorway before abandoning the attempt. End footnote. And Lewis has made a division on this line, one form of alcoholism being designated by him as the amnesic type. The patients recognize their mental enfeeblement and strive against it with painful earnestness. Amnesia is not always complete, for often there will be a dim remembrance, or a solitary event or sentence may be retained out of an otherwise amnesic period. Dr. Freud gives two very interesting cases of amnesia brought about by alcoholic excess. His accounts are plenary, so only an epitome of the cases can be presented here. The first patient was a woman 52 years old. She had had both bodily and mental disorders characteristic of alcoholism, including a slight delirium, but from these she had mostly recovered, the chief remaining symptom being a very weak memory. This caused her to be considered feeble-minded, another symptom of which was frequent chattering. Her early memory, such as the birth dates of her brothers and sisters, 
the names of her teacher and school friends was complete, and many events up to her thirtieth year were not forgotten. But of occurrences after that, and especially concerning recent events, her memory was largely a blank. At times she knew not the name of her husband, nor the place of her residence. She believed her parents and husband still alive, and thought of her grown-up children as yet uneducated. She estimated her own age correctly, and gave a correct account of her illness. She believed that she had been in her present place of abode only a few days, and mistook the doctor for her old schoolmaster. She did not remember the day of the week, month, year, or even the season. Meal times were most correctly judged, yet a few hours after meal she could not remember whether she had dined, nor could she tell what food she had had. An hour afterwards she forgot that the doctor had given her a close bodily examination, and she replied to the same question she had answered shortly before, not recognizing it. She could only repeat phrases or tunes when they were reiterated or spoken slowly and distinctly. She multiplied correctly, but could not remember the examples. She did not remember a number over a period of conversation. There was no abnormality regarding her writing. The second case was that of a woman of 65 years of age, who after alcoholic excess had isolated epileptic attacks and slight delirium. After a serious attack when admitted to the hospital, her memory became very weak, much like the former patient with symptoms of feeble-mindedness and clouded judgment. The boundary time of memory was her twentieth year, after which a few scattered events only were remembered. Of early years she could recall her place of birth, teachers, school, friends, and church, but she did not know her age, usually saying she was eighteen. She did not know that she had gray hair, nor did she know that she was in a hospital, but she gave a fair account of her illness. Recollection of simple impressions vanished in a few minutes. She could not remember her bed and similar things. Different from the first case, her power to write was greatly affected. In writing of a spontaneous character, she repeated words and portions of sentences before she could form one letter correctly, and even then it was with great difficulty that she could recall capital letters. Letters which she forgot were frequently remembered shortly afterwards. She could write from copy quite correctly when she spelled aloud the words as she wrote them. Her last success was in writing from diction, and in this exercise, accelerating the speed of the diction increased her errors. Frequently, however, she recognized the errors which she made. Her oral spelling was much superior to her written. The following is a case of hyperamnesia. Dr. Godding, in charge of the government hospital for the insane, informs me that he has seen but two instances of hyperamnesia, one in a woman, the other in a man, who suffered from dementia of alcoholic origin. In the earlier stages of his trouble, this man showed surprising memory for the smallest details of his profession, that of chemist, and for minor events and scenes of his previous life. But the augmentation of memory was only transitory, having been replaced by progressive amnesia. Paramnesia is so common in normal subjects that a case seems hardly necessary for description here. The alcoholic experience in this regard is more frequent and more pronounced, causing foolish and unexpected situations for the patient. He is introduced to a stranger whom he recognizes as an old friend, and may be very familiar with completely new surroundings. This exaggerated and continuous paramnesia is more common in alcoholic insanity than in any other form of mental disorder. It is frequently associated with illusions, and may be the result of them at times. 
The following extract shows the histological evidence and conclusions regarding the alcoholic's memory. Under the law of psychogenesis, we had previously noted that the power of recalling past memories implies a highly involved cortical mental organization and that it has behind it a nutritive law of deep significance. This capacity depends upon the integrity of the cerebral organization in two regards, viz. a. the integrity of the latest involved in elaborated anatomico-physiological connections or fields of conjunction between the neurons which subserve it, and b. the high nutritive elaboration, the high nerve tension and capacity for spontaneous discharge of the said neurons from time to time, these two, A and B, are not distinct, but will be discussed separately. In what respect does alcohol produce a change in these two above factors? In the normal relation, the dendrites and collaterals of the different cells come into contact, but in the alcoholic, there is a softening and decay of the dendrites as already described. There also comes a change in the collaterals. The dendrites and collaterals form connections, not only between one neuron and another, but between one complete set and another, for example, between nerve centers. With the dendrites and collaterals gone, this connection is impossible. When this happens, we have a diminished capacity of the neuron to be excitable to stimuli, and a diminished permeability in the pathways of the nerve currents issuing from one neuron by its nervous processes and its terminals to another in the cortical area, the psychological counterpart of which would be a slowness in the arousing of associated images, and delay in reaction time. The nutritive changes are also important. The physiology of nutrition is in the nerve cell elaborated to a high degree, and each nerve center of this or that part of the central nervous system has its own intrinsic nutritive rhythm. In the alcoholic brain, the earlier and subtler changes affect not merely the field of conjunction, but the trophic or nutritive forms, cell body and nucleus of each individual neuron. These changes show an increased functional activity and degradation therefrom, evidenced by the softening and alteration of the blue chromatic rods and granules and displacement of yellow pigment. The increase in progress of pigmentation is equivalent of the onset and progress of degradation in the functional activity of the cell. The replacement of living protoplasm by non-living pigmentary product as we see in senile decay. The memory may be divided into three factors, the purely physical retention, the psychophysical reproduction, and the purely psychical recognition. Sometimes there is added to these the factor of localization, but this is rather an elaboration of memory than a real part of it. Insofar as it is necessary, this factor will be treated under the rubric of recognition. The effects of alcohol on the memory will be shown by its effect upon each one of the factors in turn, and thus the total injury can be comprehended. It might be remarked here in passing that the theory of the physical basis of memory, which the writer accepts, can be briefly stated as follows. Memory depends upon a persistent disposition or tendency to movement created in the brain. The prerequisite of memory is an impression made upon and responded to by the mind, of which we shall take perception as the type. It seems unnecessary to say that what is not perceived cannot be remembered, but perhaps it would be less readily accepted 
if we should say that in proportion as the perception is less distinct so the memory of it will be not only less clear but also less lasting as we shall see when we come to consider the subject later on alcohol has a very distinct effect upon the senses this is especially true of the organs of sight but also of other special senses common sensations and the muscular sense the general affections of the end organs prevent normal perception the hardening of the brain makes it less susceptible and plastic while the decay of the cells and fibers if in process of degeneration at the time would also prove to be a preventative of a necessary modification the condition of the body at the time of perception is very important the question of the energy of the person figures conspicuously in the previous chapter when speaking of the histological appearance of the nerve cells in alcoholism we found that the appearance of the cell when fatigued and when affected by alcohol was quite similar in several respects we know that when fatigued we cannot respond to a sensation so well and do not remember so well afterwards because we have not received the required impression and given the required response to make the necessary modification in cells and fibers in some experiments with persons deprived of sleep the memory failed in waves and at the end of ninety hours it was very much slower or failed entirely this showed the effect of a low nervous energy on perception the impression not being made and the mind not responding to sensuous stimuli that the flow of blood is necessary in a normal degree in perception is seen in the fact that we are less bright as far as perception is concerned after a meal than before if the stomach demands an abnormal amount of blood the brain cannot have its normal quantity the fresher and more energetic the vital processes the better may things be learned for example the sensuous percepts will leave behind more permanent and deeper traces even things perceived in an energetic and cheerful frame of mind are more easily retained we know that on account of the diseased condition of the blood vessels of the alcoholic the proper amount of blood cannot reach the brain and so perception is less forceful the other functions of the brain concerned in perception to make it available to the mind being also affected the perception if perfect cannot be known as such the element of attention required in all perception is lacking in the alcoholic the value of attention to memory is shown by the first of a series always being remembered best because it attracts the attention and strikes the organs when fresh and forceful some have claimed that the difficulty usually attributed to memory in old age and alcoholism should properly be laid to the door of perception on account of the lack of attention that the attention degenerates first and not the memory however true this may be we know that the power of voluntary attention as well as what might be called spontaneous attention is diminished in alcoholics and memory is injured thereby voluntary attention is lacking on account of the lack of will the sensations are also misinterpreted which makes perception untrustworthy many mistakes commonly attributed to recognition may without doubt be due to erroneous perception and the recognition at least in some cases be perfect thus the accusation against the alcoholic of being smooth-tongued fluent liar may not in all cases be due to his moral degeneration but to his improper perception he may tell things different from the way in which they appear to the normal person and yet his account may be as he saw them or heard them the trouble being that he did not see or hear them correctly 
Supposing the perception to be normal, do we find the retentive power of the memory injured? This is a physical process purely, and if the injury comes through the physical, we would expect the trouble, as far as the memory is concerned, to originate here. This is undoubtedly the case. As soon as the modification is made in the elements, the nourishment provided by the blood must be sufficient to continue the modifications in the original way. To allow the cell to produce its kind so as, in the event of its death, to have other cells take its place. The fact that perception received just before sleep, when the cells have immediately afterwards much rest and nourishment, is remembered well, and that the events immediately preceding severe illnesses, such as fevers, cholera, excessive hemorrhages, inveterate syphilis, etc., are not remembered, shows the necessity of nourishment following the perception, if it is to be retained. We find that there is sometimes a permanent loss of memory after lead, mercury, and nicotine poisoning. This might be due as well to the lack of ability to make associations, through the shrinkage of the fibers, for some poisons have the effect of contracting nervous tissue, and a very slight contraction would separate itself from its neighbor and companions in labor. Fatigue or any lack of nervous force after perception causes a lack of retention, the older particles are dying continually, hence new particles must be supplied to keep up the structure, and this is done by the repositing of new matter in the precise form of the old. The physical basis of memory is therefore nutrition. The lack of nutrition is well known in alcoholics, not only on account of the impoverished condition of the blood, but also on account of the small supply received, due, as we have seen, to embolisms, or the closing of the lumen of the arteries. We found that the cells and their dendrites were actually destroyed in some cases, degenerating through the effect of alcohol upon them. Of course, if this is so, the modification cannot remain, and the cell cannot function. Not only the elements directly modified, but those indirectly changed, and upon which the associations depend may be injured. We know that if a single nervous element is destroyed or paralyzed, that suffices. The well-known mechanism of association will explain the rest. A chain is as strong as its weakest link. This applies to the chain of associations, and if one link is gone, the whole thought perishes. As memory is primarily a process of organization, so amnesia is a process of disorganization and dissolution. The basis of memory is not simply a collection of impressions, but an organization of what have been called dynamical associations or habits of the functioning of the various elements of the brain, which respond to appropriate stimuli. Because of the impression made upon the single cell, it functions in a certain manner, but it functions thus in connection with many other cells and fibers to allow us to have memory. Probably never all the cells and fibers of a system are destroyed, but the system is destroyed when one of its factors is. It is not necessary for the tracks of a whole railroad system to be removed in order to prevent traffic. One rail or even one spike, in infinitely small proportion, if removed, wrecks the train and prevents its arriving at its destination. Thus, if one cell loses its power of functioning in a certain way, loses its retention, then the whole thought is destroyed. This disorganization begins with the most unstable systems of neurons, with those which require a large and complicated mechanism. Because it requires so little, such a small retraction of the dendrites, or a small part of the cell, 
incapacitated to prevent its functioning. Kleefeld found in his experiments that when alcohol is introduced into the circulation, it produced almost instantly a retraction of the minute branches of the neurons, at least of a great number of them. The pathological growth of the brain as a whole and the invasion of connective tissue among the individual cells and fibers so distort the cells as to destroy any modification which they may have had or prevent them from functioning in their usual manner. This growth must also interfere with the complex systems which have elements all through the two hemispheres and prevent the working of the systems as wholes. Thus, in two distinct ways, the growth seriously interfere with the memory. We know the brain of the alcoholic to degenerate in this way. So here again, an additional cause is found for the loss of memory. It is exceedingly difficult, if at all possible, to distinguish between the destruction of the memory as retentive and as reproductive. We know, of course, when we fail to reproduce a thought at one time and under certain circumstances and are able to do so at other times, that the fault has been with the reproduction. But when the idea is never reproduced, it is impossible without further data to know where the fault lies. What has been said under the head of the destruction of the memory as retentive may also apply to the lack of reproduction, as we found it necessary to have the body as a whole and the brain in particular in a good state of health when we acquire any idea in order to remember it. So it is necessary to be in equally good condition when we desire to recall or reproduce anything. In fact, the conditions necessary, both physically and psychically, are very similar in presentation and reproduction. We require nourishment, good blood supply, and well-functioning nervous elements, as well as attention in both. As we found that the alcoholic lacked these conditions in perception, so he lacks them in reproduction. Both involuntary reproduction, or recall, and spontaneous reproduction, the alcoholic is very weak. He has lost the power of will, and as we shall see in a later chapter, hence the lack of voluntary reproduction. The general decline of nervous force and the sluggish flow of thought account for the absence of spontaneity. The feeling of strain, so apparent during voluntary attention, shows that mental work is necessary, and this the alcoholic cannot do well. This inattention, so apparent, not only lessens the extent to which ideas can be taken up and retained in consciousness, but in a still greater degree confuses and deranges the associational connections in what is actually recollected. The associations become very unstable, and referring again to our railroad illustration, the train is easily switched to another track through this lack of attention until a few tracks only are used. The others through disuse, atrophy, and through disease, which would attack the weaker, unused elements, soon decay. The decay of one element not only interferes with the idea directly dependent upon the system to which it belongs, but with the other systems which are dependent upon it. So as we say, a whole train of thought is lost. This happens not because of the lack of retention in the greater part of the physical basis of this train, but because the connecting elements having gone, it is impossible to stimulate the figuratively more distant elements. The physical basis of associations of ideas being destroyed, we have no means of approach. The idea is therefore past recall unless the damaging factor is removed and sufficient nourishment comes to the affected part 
to allow of the renewing of the association fiber, as is sometimes the case after Wallerian degeneration. Besides attention and association of ideas, other mental states have an effect upon the memory. All varieties of emotion have an influence, as an example given, anger, fright, depression, and joy. The first three are generally detrimental because they lower the nervous force or else divert it. When there is a loss of nervous force not immediately replaceable, there is a corresponding diminution of memory. In no condition is this better shown than in that of fatigue. Nearly all books dealing with memory giving definite examples of this. There is that example of Sir Henry Holland, who, while in the Hartz Mountains, became very much fatigued as a result of which he was unable to remember a word of German, and therefore could not converse with those who were accompanying him. On becoming rested, a full recollection of all his knowledge of German returned. Assistant Surgeon Woodruff, in a paper published in the Philadelphia Medical Journal, gives several examples of entire lapse of memory among the officers of the United States Army doing duty in the Philippine Islands. The phenomenon took place usually late in the day on account of exhaustion, and not until after a rest, differing in length from an hour to a whole night, was the memory restored. We have all had similar experiences of being unable voluntarily to recall something when we were exhausted, and our heads felt tired, while after an interval of repose, when we felt fresh, it was easily recalled. This return of reproductive power is probably due to the renovation of brain tissue and the purification of blood, which has been charged with waste products. If, as is largely the case with the alcoholic, not sufficient blood comes to the affected parts, and what blood does come is surcharged with injurious matter, and if the vascular system is so injured as to prevent the carrying away of the affete matter, whence comes the necessary repair and change. With the alcoholic it never comes, and gradually, through lack of repair, the neurons lose their ability to function, sometimes becoming so weak and degenerated that an ordinary stimulus is not sufficiently powerful to affect them. The very presence of alcohol in the blood is detrimental to reproduction because of the effect it has upon the healthy neuron. Experiments with various toxic substances show that when the neurons come in contact with them, they contract. True, it is a very slight contraction, but a slight contraction is sufficient to prevent the transference of stimuli when the connection is not organic and continuous, but by synapse. The interlacing dendrites and collaterals drawing apart an exceedingly short distance prevent the connection, not only between single neurons, but in doing this between different systems. So long as the harmful substance continues in the blood, the process of the memory of many experiences may be hindered. Again, the effects of the pathological growth in the brain may be noticed. By crowding and otherwise injuring whole areas of the brain as well as individual neurons, they prevent the normal functions. They thus hinder reproduction, which requires the healthy condition and normal position of every portion of the brain to do its best work. That retention is much broader than reproduction, that is, that many ideas are retained and normally not reproduced, is shown by some cases of abnormal memory in alcoholics. The exalted memory, or hyperamnesia, is also seen in some cases of fever, as, for example, that classic case of the illiterate serving maid, 
who in her delirium repeated long passages of Greek and Hebrew, which her master had recited when she was about her work in the house, which she had scarcely noticed at the time. In some cases of great sorrow, similar phenomena noticed. In fact, the phenomena is seen in many abnormal conditions, which put an additional burden upon the mind. This, however, is only a proof of amnesia, for it shows a disservance of certain groups and systems of neurons, which no normal volitional effort can stimulate, that the physical basis of these ideas have been previously separated from those of the normal stream of thought. The mechanism of these dissevered tracks may still be preserved in working order, except that it would become weaker through disuse, and when some abnormal condition furnishes an exceedingly strong stimulus, this mechanism again functions, with the result of what is called hyperamnesia. We now come to the characteristic factor of memory, recognition. If the quality most needed in memory were demanded, trustworthiness would be the answer. What is memory if not trustworthy, and how can we have trustworthiness unless there is perfect recognition? Yet in our discussion here, we can probably deal less with recognition than with other factors, because while so characteristic and necessary, it is equally difficult to explain. We know that we do recognize, but why and how we recognize are questions not yet answered. Some have attempted a physical explanation in this way. It is a feeling caused by the brain elements working in the same way as they have previously done. For example, a sensation of repeating a physical action, but we know on introspection that recognition is not such. Most persons who give a totally physical explanation of memory wholly ignore recognition and perhaps not unwisely, for it is a physical factor, pure and simple. It is because of this psychical nature that it comes in for so small a part in our consideration here, where we have physical causes and look for physical effects primarily. Although we cannot discover a local basis to examine histologically from which to draw conclusions of a psychical nature, we can examine recognition itself through introspection on account of its very psychical nature. We find that in alcoholism, recognition is at fault at the very point where we desire it to be sound, viz. in its trustworthiness. This is shown in two ways. First, it does not recognize some things which have been perceived before and which are brought before the mind again. And second, things are supposedly recognized which have never before been experienced. Footnote, J.R. Wilson, Drunkenness, pages 37 forward, describes the disorders of recognition as follows. But it is in the process of recognition of allied functions that the most interesting and grotesque mistakes are made by the habitual drunkard. The disordered brain refuses to operate for recognition when it should, and accordingly familiar objects seem strange, and facts brought to his recollection fail to excite conviction, or the mechanism for recognition reacts to a wrong stimuli and he has a sense of familiarity with new surroundings or greets a strange face with assurance of time-honored friendship. Closely allied to these mistakes in identity, there are defects in orientation. In alcoholism, orientation is almost invariably impaired, so that in advanced stages, the patient easily loses himself, mistakes the hospital for home, cannot find his way even by a route that he has traveled daily, and fails to judge intervals of time and to realize the drift of the season. End footnote.
The first of these troubles we would speak of as the usual fault in recognition. The second is called paramnesia, and has lately received considerable attention from students being the subject of various and diverse conclusions concerning its cause. It would be impossible for the mind as a whole to degenerate or to have the other factors of memory affected without there being a corresponding effect upon recognition. The fact that the mind as a whole is weakened in alcoholism cannot well be disputed, and some of these faculties of mind, closely allied and necessary to recognition, we find injured. The judgment as a whole is certainly incapacitated, and as far as recognition is a judgment, it is weakened thereby. The self-consciousness is lessened and confused, and if recognition as applied to memory means not only the considering of a certain experience to be in the past, but to be in the past of the individual experiencing it, then it is necessary, in order to have recognition perform its natural work, to have a clear and well-defined self-consciousness. Time and space relations must be easily and surely grasped in perfect recognition, but here again the alcoholic is deficient. He makes frequent mistakes in orientation as well as in other forms of localization. Sometimes the most familiar articles of dress or persons whom he met frequently and knows well are all strangers to him, and he has to be introduced over and over again to acquaintances. He may, however, be able to recognize them as having seen them before, but when he last saw them, whether yesterday or ten years ago, he is unable to tell. Equally uncertain is he of their place of abode, their relation to him or anything connected with them. These last cases may be extreme if permanent, but not infrequently does the alcoholic have pronounced temporary attacks of this kind. It is said that women suffering from alcoholic peripheral neuritis lose account of time and are without ordinary knowledge of their whereabouts. But this failure to orient is not peculiar to the female sex or to peripheral neuritis as a result of alcoholic excess. But in other effects of alcoholism, we find it as a common symptom. The phenomena of paramnesia is common. Probably everyone has had the experience of viewing a landscape, reading a passage in a book, or being introduced to a new acquaintance with a distinct feeling of having had the same experience before. Not only the landscape looked the same, but the same friends were accompanying you. You were dressed the same, the wind was blowing, or the sun was shining exactly the same manner. Not only the passage in the book was the same, but you were reading it in the same room, sitting in the same posture, in the same chair, on a similar day, etc. Everything identical, only it seemed to be distant and hazy, notwithstanding the fact that you seemed to know what was coming next, and concerning which you were not often disappointed. This is sometimes accompanied by a feeling of anxiety and uneasiness. There appear to be no other factors of memory in use except that of recognition, that feeling of familiarity with the whole circumstances. Your reason tells you you could not have had this experience before, yet you feel that you have. This is comparatively common. But the alcoholic has it not only more frequently, it takes a firmer hold upon him. He is taken into entirely new surroundings, which he nevertheless remembers perfectly. Everything is exceedingly familiar to him, even the people who are total strangers. It sometimes becomes ludicrous. Nothing is strange or unknown. Cases of paramnesia have been divided into three classes. First, simple paramnesia, or pseudo-reminiscence. This is where something dreamed or read or pictures of the imagination are thought to be true. 
Second, identifying paramnesia. This is the been there before experience described above, which is most frequent in young people and those with a vivid imagination, and at times of fatigue and excitement, but which in the normal person is easily corrected. Third, suggested or associated paramnesia. Some actual impression suggests an illusion of memory. Now, while the alcoholic without doubt is troubled with all three forms, it is the second form, that of identifying paramnesia, with which he is especially troubled, with the first form next seriously troublesome. The attempted explanations have been many. Usually only the second form, that of identifying paramnesia, is discussed and explained. It is very difficult to discover any theory exactly fitting the facts, but it seems that there is some disaggregation in consciousness from a physical cause. Both the first and second forms of paramnesia are found often in times of fatigue, as well in times of weakness from old age and disease. We have noted before the similarity between the person fatigued and the alcoholic. Both lack in nervous force, and hence the mind does not work quickly and harmoniously, the connections between the different parts being uncertain. In the normal person, paramnesia may be quickly and easily corrected, but when the critical faculty of mind is impaired, it is impossible to say whether a certain presentation has sufficient evidence of familiarity to call it memory, or whether the feeling of familiarity is stronger than the grounds for disbelieving it. Something familiar may have been dreamed and made to fit the present case, being substituted for the basis of this memory, and while it is usually easy to tell what is remembered, what is dreamed, and what is imagined, there is an uncertain borderland with the most rational and critical individual. This borderland extends in proportion as the reason decreases until it may cover the whole consciousness. This latter condition becomes more and more the state of the alcoholic, which in part accounts for the abnormal proportion of his states that are tinged with paramnesia. In common with amnesia, generally, the failure of the memory of the alcoholic advances in chronological order. The events most recently occurring are forgotten, while the experiences of childhood or early life are retained. This is the case with senility, with which alcoholism is so closely related in many of its effects. This order of loss is noticeable also in the case of almost all diseases which affect the memory. The events prior to the disease are retained with great tenacity, but those following the illness are quickly forgotten. So, in stating this order of loss of memory in alcoholism, we are saying that this abnormality is perfectly normal as far as the order is concerned. Why the memory of the alcoholic fails has been discussed, but why it fails in this way, why there is this selective failure, may take our attention for a short time. The memories of babyhood, for example, prior to six or seven years of age, are very few and uncertain. Of course, the alphabet we learned then, and other similar things which are frequently repeated, are never forgotten, but here specific experiences are referred to. We have some cases, though, of events in the life of children under two years of age being remembered. These recollections were not produced spontaneously, but were recognized when experienced again. The reason for the meagerness of babyhood memories is probably because Dynamic associations are not firmly established, and the mental material is in a chaotic state. But just as soon as there is a sufficiently organized basis for associations, then the time for acquiring has come, 
In the 10 to 20 years following babyhood is the best period for obtaining knowledge, as all readily recognize. The reasons for this are manifold. In children, the cerebral cells are flabby, grayish, and flexible. The sensorial excitement must therefore make an impression upon them more readily since it finds them in the state of vacuity when they will respond easily and quickly. It thus takes much less to impress a child than an older person. Therefore, little things in childhood make a stronger impression and more things are retained. Neither is there the struggle between the different impressions that there is in latter years, for there are fewer things to distract the attention. The number of associations is much less, so that the last event is connected with more of the proceeding, each element in the experience being incorporated into the general association. When latter in life the groups of associations are numerous, the event must be connected only with its appropriate groups, and hence is not so liable to recall and repetition as if attached to the whole experience. The tendency of early years is to follow lines already opened, instead of going into bypass where the organization is less complete. It is when the brain is growing that a definite direction can be most strongly and persistently given to its structure. When the blood is flowing freely and the whole body is developing, when the cells are multiplying rapidly, each following the bent of its parent, the impressions and modifications are firmly established according to the laws of nutrition already referred to. Because the early impressions are the only stock in trade of the mind, they are repeated over and over again, and all new acquisitions are associated with them. The idea that comes into consciousness and is revived very seldom or never is very unstable, and many such disappear forever. For example, the ordinary events of everyday life, they may be clear and intense at the time, but are not reorganized. Each return, whether voluntary or involuntary, causes a gain in stability, and the tendency to organize is accentuated. Now, such repetition comes to a relatively small number of ideas in child life. Because the number is small, they must be repeated and revived often, and be incorporated in many associations with the new acquisitions. Thus, the childhood experiences not only become firmly established in the growing and developing mind, but because of this, they are the foundations of the adult mental life and are intertwined with mature daily experiences. In some investigations, it was computed that 39% of all associations of adult mental life were those of childhood, and the associations of recent years were very few. While this percentage may be a little large, it gives us some idea of the hold that childhood experiences have upon the adult mental life and the dependence of the latter upon them. With the highly developed state of organization which these childhood experiences have, we can well see why they are retained longer than the more recent ones. In progressive amnesia, such as the alcoholic experiences, during the initial period only partial disorders are manifest. The patient is forgetful only the most recent events, as of those of the past hour or minute. The task interrupted is forgotten. Sent across the room for a book or a pencil, he returns to be told again what he was sent for. The incidents of the day fade away. A resolution made is soon effaced. These things can hardly be considered subjects of memory, for they have not really become a part of the mind's store. The nerve elements, being a prey to atrophy and disease, are no longer capable of the conservation 
of new impressions, for neither a new modification in the cells nor the formation of new dynamic associations is possible, or at least permanent. The anatomical conditions of stability and revivification are wanting. The events which have really been a part of memory soon begin to disappear in the chronological order above referred to. The order of time corresponds to the relative stability, the latter experience is being less stable because less organized, the new and complex perishing before the old and simple. In the forgetting of words, we find those denoting concrete and individual objects are the first lost, while abstract concepts and relations are remembered better. Therefore, proper names and nouns generally are forgotten before verbs, adjectives, and pronouns. There are other ways of remembering persons than by their names. We can call up the image in some way, so with a city. Thus, these proper names are not so essential and not so commonly recalled. On the other hand, words are the only traces of the abstract. It has been harder work to acquire the abstract and we fortify the words with more associations. We find also an order of disappearance in the general content of the mind. Events go first, followed by ideas, then sentiments and affections, and finally actions. Thus the primitive basis upon which the patient has for a long time been able to live begin to crumble away. Intellectual acquisitions disappear little by little. Only recognitions of babyhood may remain or he forgets the greater part of his language. Those acquisitions are the last to succumb, are almost entirely organic, such as a routine of daily life, and habits long contracted. The memory is so far gone in advanced cases that the events of early life and childhood are spoken of as if they happened a few hours before, and even the most intimate acquaintances are not recognized. Thus the alcoholic lives in his past and becomes more and more childish. He may even be able to reason quite correctly about his childhood, while wholly incompetent to do so concerning present experiences. In stating the order of loss, it will be remembered that among the last contents of the mind to fade away are the memories of the emotions and the affections. Some have denied that there is a memory of the emotions as such. In the greater number of cases, only the conditions, circumstances, and accessories of the emotion can be recalled. There is only an intellectual memory. There exists an effective type of memory, as there is a visual type. The reviving depends on the cerebral and internal condition more than on the primitive impressions themselves. The above quotations are not incompatible with the expressed order of decline. For while it is very difficult to reproduce the same feeling which we have experienced, we can remember well that we have experienced it. We may not be able to reproduce the pain which we felt on a certain occasion, but we remember clearly that we had it. The feelings truly are much more slowly effaced than the intellectual qualities or faculties. Feelings being innate are much more profound and are concomitant with and tenacious to all forms of mental life. With the amnesia of feeling goes the self, but on the other hand, feeling must be controlled. If our feelings are largely dominant, the life will be inhuman and capricious. Such, however, is the case with the alcoholic. His reason is in abeyance and degenerated. His memories may be those largely of feeling. In the experience of the writer, the earliest memories of life are those of feelings. Four memories 
of his fifth year are his first distinct recollections, and nothing further is clearly remembered until two years later. The chronology is, of course, obtained from his mother, and he connects these feelings with the circumstances as he has heard them related since the incidents occurred. Many others of his early recollections are of an effective character. Now, if the alcoholic has a similar experience, viz. that his early memories are largely effective, and if the other memories fade before the effective memories do, we would expect him to be what we actually find him, a person largely controlled by his emotions, for they form the principal part of his mental life. While the temperament would have some bearing on the result, still the general principles hold good. Of course, a certain proportion of emotional memories is lost, but this proportion is small compared with that of the intellectual faculties. The far-reaching effects of the loss of memory cannot be well realized without examining each of the faculties separately. The power of abstract reasoning, judgment, imagination, in fact, all the faculties, are seriously affected, and the degeneration of these in turn further injures the memory. The very conception of personality depends quite fully upon the memory. For whom do we know, or why do we speak of ourselves as one person except through the assistance of memory? In single intoxications, we sometimes have phenomena much resembling those of dual or multiple personality. There is the anecdote of the Irish porter who lost the package when drunk. When he became sober, he was unable to remember anything about it. But on getting drunk again, he was able to recall where he had left it. In advanced cases, we find worse abnormalities than this, insomuch that the whole personality seems to be shriveled, degenerated, and decreased almost to the vanishing point. But these will be treated in another chapter. Along with the memory also goes the morals. We will stop here to refer only to one point, which has already been hinted at. Above, it has been said that perhaps one reason why the alcoholic is a seeming liar is because he does not perceive correctly, but tells things as he did perceive them. Let us make another excuse for him. He does not remember correctly, or perhaps does not remember at all, and hence another reason for his seeming untruthfulness. But subtract all we can from these two reasons, and it is but just that we should discount from the accusation on these accounts. Yet there is sufficient untruthfulness left to sustain the reputation of the alcoholic as the prince of liars. In trying to cover the ground of the effects of alcohol upon the memory, we have dealt largely with the physical side. Because we were looking for causes, it seems that any derangement of the memory is inexplicable by the person who refuses to pass from the psychological to the physical. It is necessary to be physiological but we have tried to escape the error of those who, in treating the derangements of the memory, have been physiological only. Further, as the subject of memory leads us so fully into the study of the mind, content-wise, we fully realize, as we have tried to show by a few, perhaps too few, references that the mind must also be viewed from the standpoint of its activity. It is because the mind is not able to function for example, to be active, that is not able to remember. We have found the disorders of the memory to be of three classes, amnesia, hyperamnesia, and paramnesia. 
the first of these brings the most common and serious. The conditions under which the various divisions of the memory are most active were noted, and the reasons why alcohol affected each division as well as the memory as a whole were discussed. It was found that in every department of the memory, alcohol was a serious hindrance to proper functioning. Hyperamnesia appears to be only a transient phase, and paramnesia is much exaggerated in some cases. Two laws of degeneration of the memory were posited, that of decline inversely to the chronological order of the occurrence of events, and a loss according to the nature of the events involved. There is no faculty of the mind whose injury carries with it such general mental decline. End of chapter 3